We are in Isaiah 12. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, If you're new, welcome. We are so glad to have you here this morning. My name is Ryan. I'm a member here. And today we're going to be continuing our journey through the book of Isaiah. Um, I want to give a quick recap of how we got here to chapter 12 before I start. And I actually have a map today for some of you visual learners out there. So if we could bring up the map, Zach. So here... You see, God's people, Israel, is a divided kingdom. So we have two kingdoms. In the southern kingdom, we have Judah. In the northern kingdom, we have Israel, or Ephraim, which is so intermingled with the nations around it that it's not even labeled on there, but it's around that area of Syria. And then you also see the superpower of Assyria in purple. And in purple is where the Assyrian Empire started at the time of Isaiah, at the time of King Ahab, when he was king of Judah. And you can see that the green is where that empire expanded to. So they were just consuming and defeating and conquering all of these nations around them. And out of fear, Judah, the king of Judah, King Ahaz thought that Syria, along with the northern kingdom, would try to attack them and use them to grow their army to defend themselves against this superpower of Assyria. So the king of Judah, King Ahaz, was fearful. He was full of fear. And this is where Isaiah comes in. And he says, in your fear, do not turn to what you can see. Do not turn to the superpower. Turn to the Lord. Have faith in the Lord. King Ahaz doesn't listen. He turns to the superpower of Assyria. And because of that, God punishes his people. They turn away from him. They don't trust in him. And he hands them over to the Assyrians. So we see in in chapter 7 through 12, we see... God's judgment of Judah for turning away from him and trusting in the power of Assyria. But we also start to see God's grace. We start to see and hear about this coming Messiah who would deliver them from this war and from all of the disunity that Israel has. They talk about a day when the tribes of Israel will be delivered once and for all. They will be unified once and for all. They also talk, Isaiah talks about a day where all of creation will So not just Israel, but there will be peace in all the earth. So the Lord is talking both about a day of the immediate delivery of Judah and Israel from this tyranny of Assyria, but also about a day where there will be complete peace on earth. And chapter 12 is a song, a hymn of praise that rejoices in that day, that looks forward to that day of the Messiah coming. So where do we fit into this? Obviously, we're not at the time of the Assyrian Empire, 
But we're also not to the point where creation's been fully redeemed yet. I don't know about you, but I've not seen any wolves lying down with lambs outside. So we're not there yet. So where do we fit in this? Well, although God has not restored creation fully yet, he has sent his Messiah. Jesus has come, and so we are sharers in these promises already in part, and we eagerly look forward to the total redemption and the total fulfillment of these promises in the future. Jesus is this Messiah who has come. He says this in Matthew 5.17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We also read in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So all of these promises that Isaiah is giving about the future, these are ours if we are in Christ because he has come, he has delivered us. And so I want to look at this passage today, chapter 12, in light of us who are in Christ and what that means to us. Before I start, let me just go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father God, we are honored and delighted to be called your children, Lord, and know this love that surpasses knowledge. I'm so grateful for this body and um, the people willing to give up time to serve and to love and to care for. Uh, one another here, Lord, and I pray that you just uh, speak through me today, God, that I can be faithful to your word and that you encourage the hearts of these people, Lord. Thank you so much. I pray you keep them safe on their drives home. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Starts out in verse 1. You will say in that day. You here in verse 1 is singular. This is a personal response to God's salvation. You will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. In that day of the Messiah, when there's total peace on earth, you're going to be so filled with gratitude at what God has done. And I want to say more about this, but before I do, I just want to look at what the Lord has done first to cause this thankfulness. Continuing in verse 1, For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. So why was God angry? If you remember the, the Israelites and King Ahaz, they didn't trust in the Lord. They turned to other nations and adopted the ways of the other nations around them, including their religious beliefs and gods. They turned to other gods and the ways of this world. So why was God angry? He was angry because his people didn't have faith in him. They turned to something they could see instead of turning to him in faith. And so God was right to be angry with his people. He was right. They, they broke the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God first with all of your heart. Don't love nations. Don't trust in other things. Trust in me. And I, I don't want you to think that this only applies to Israel in that time. We're told all over Scripture that we're not to conform to the patterns of this world. We're not to love the world. We're to set our minds on heavenly things and not on earthly things. And those who set their minds on, earth, on, he, on earthly things are going towards death. We're told those, those things, and this very much applies to us. So why, why this concept that if we're focused on the world, uh, it leads to death? It, it leads to death because that's evidence that our minds and our hearts are, are set on something other than the Lord. It's evidence that God is not our first love. If we're focused on the things here, and we're desiring, and our affections are set on the things of this world, this might be easier to understand in terms of a marriage. Uh, if there was a wife who thought about more and desired to be with more and spent more time with and spent more money 
on and was happier around another man other than her husband, you would say that that wife is not faithful to her husband now. You would say that, that her husband now is not her first love. Well, that's God talks about Israel in the first chapters of Isaiah. He says, you're an unfaithful spouse. You've turned away from me and set your affections on something else. And God deserves our utmost affection. He is our creator. He deserves that from his bride. And so he is right to be angry with his people. He is right to be angry. Because we so often, just like Judah, we don't give him that utmost affection. Now, as Christians, you might not ever say, I love something above the Lord. You might have not even had that thought before. You might say, I'm a Christian. Of course God is my first love. Of course. But take a look at your lives. What do you think about the most? What do you talk about the most? What do you get most excited about? What do you look forward to after a hard day? Those are the things that are revealing what you truly love, where your affections are at, what you're trusting in for strength. Those things that you're desiring more than the Lord, even if they're good things, they become ultimate things and they become idols because you're putting them above the Lord. And just as Judah turned to Assyria and their gods for protection, we turn to other things, even though we might not say that, we may not think like that. That's what we're doing. And the one true God is a jealous God. He wants the affection of his bride. He wants our love. He wants to be our first and greatest love. And so because he's not so often, he is righteous in his anger against us. He is right to be angry at an unfaithful bride. Now when we do hold something higher than God, he responds by punishment. And we see this in the Lord punishing Judah. We read in chapter 8 of Isaiah that he was going to bring the waters of Assyria up to their neck. He gave them over to what they wanted, right? King Ahaz said, I want, secure, I want the Assyrians to protect me. He says, have the Assyrians. See where that gets you. And where did it lead them? It led them to be conquered and almost drowned by the Assyrians. They were brought up to their necks, but... God is not going to let his people be totally consumed. He shows his grace. Your anger turned away. God turns from his anger. Now, this is the same concept as the word repent, which means to completely turn away from something. Now, obviously, God doesn't need to repent in the sense that he has done something wrong and he needs to turn away from that. But it's this concept that he is turning as far away from his anger as he can to something else. When I was in college, I... Uh, I worked at a camp north of Pittsburgh for inner city kids. And uh, some of the kids were really rough. And on this particular week, we had eight and nine-year-olds, and there was this kid named Quail. And this kid was tough. He was hard. He always getting in the fights, always resisting everything we told him to do. And one day I can remember, I was on the other side of the cabin, and I hear this ruckus going on. I hear a fight going on. I hear things falling down. And I go over there, and, and there's stuff all over the floor. Everyone is standing up. And I, I just say, Quail, go outside and wait for me on the porch. I was angry with him. I was so angry, and I'm almost sure it was him causing this problem. And he storms out. He's angry. He storms out. But on my way out to the porch, I realized I had completely just assumed that it was Quail. I don't know that for sure. And I was, I was sorrowful for the and I turned away from my anger. I turned away from my anger. I went outside. He's sitting on the bench. He is, 
fuming. He's ready to take a verbal beating. He's looking straight ahead. If he was three feet taller, he would have tried to fight me. I get down on my knees. I'm eye level with Quail. And I say, Quail, I realize that I walked in and I assumed it was you. And I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry that I did that. Would you please forgive me? And I watched this kid melt in front of me. I watched him go from fuming to open hands and slug shoulders. And he had a confused look, but he said, yes, yes, I will confuse you. I will forgive you. He was, he was confused, confused because no adult has ever taken the time to talk to Quail like that. That's probably the first time and maybe the only time an adult would apologize to him. I was turning from my anger, and I said to him, Quail, believe it or not, I love you, and I care about you, and I want you to have an awesome week. That's why we tell you guys to do things. We want to keep you safe so that everyone can enjoy this. We care about you. God, God cares about us in that same way. But he can't turn from his anger like that. God can't turn from his anger in the same way because he is 100% just and his anger against us. So how does the Lord turn from his anger? We read in Psalm 85, verses 2 and 3, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. And you turned from your hot anger. God only turns away from his anger through forgiveness. And the only way God can forgive us and his people for turning away from him towards other things, to carry that much sin and that much anger, the only way he can forgive us is by himself taking that wrath, by Jesus coming and bearing that wrath and punishment for us. That's the Messiah. That's the Messiah he's talking about here. All that anger and punishment that the people and we deserve was carried on the cross by Jesus so that we could know the Lord and He could comfort us. Your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Now what is God's comfort? I'm going to tell you what it's not. God's comfort is not He's going to put you in a comfortable situation. It's not... He's going to let you relax and sit back and get everything your heart desires and never challenge you in your ways. That is not God's comfort. That's usually the opposite of God's comfort. God will most often put you in an uncomfortable situation. He'll put you in sufferings and trials and hardships so that you might call out for Him in those moments. We call out for the Lord. So what is God's comfort? God's comfort is Himself. God gives us Himself. He is our comfort in those moments. We read in 2 Corinthians 1 that God, He's called the God of all comfort who comforts us in our afflictions. Listen to that. While we're going through the hardships, God is with us. That is our comfort. It's the Lord. Look at verse 2. Behold, this is my big point. Behold, God is my salvation. God Himself. I get the person. It's not that God has only saved me once back here and then He lets me live my life, the rest of my life, however I want it to. No, He's with me. I get saved into something. I get saved into a relationship with the Lord. God becomes my salvation. I get the Lord in a relationship with Him. And I see the Lord in those moments, just like Quail saw in me. He is for our good. 
He wants us to enjoy him and live a life of joy and of love and knowing the Lord's love. And because of that, we can say, the next line, I will trust. I will trust and not be afraid. You know, we're afraid of something or someone when we think they're against us or they're out to get us or hurt us. But we begin to trust someone when we see that they're really for our good. They have our best in mind. When we start to see God like that as as our comfort and trust that God doesn't withhold anything good from his children, that's when we're filled with thanks. That's when we're filled with trust that all of our fears go away because we see how much the Lord loves us. Perfect love casts out fear. God is for you, Veritas, more than any other person you've ever known. And real quick, I want to show you how God is for you. Just looking at Romans 8. I feel okay doing this because Aaron quoted Romans 8 last week. So Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit, though we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit intercedes for us with groans for words. The Spirit is interceding for you, especially in those times of hardship and trial when you don't know what to say. Romans 8.32, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with his son, graciously give us all things? God has already proven to us he's willing to give up his most treasured possession, Jesus. He's already given him up for us. So these secondary things, he's totally fine giving those things up because he's already proved he's willing to give everything up. And Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He's the one who carried our sins. More than that, who was raised to life and is seated at the right hand of the Father and is also interceding for us. So every time we sin and we start to think God is casting me away, we remember, no, Jesus is sitting at God's right hand saying, I've already paid for their sins. He's mediating for us. God shows you in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit every one of His persons. He is for you, Veritas. You know that John Legend song? All of me loves all of you. (laughs) The Bible is an infinitely better love song. And I hope you see it like that. God is showing you that He's giving all of Himself for you because He loves you. And we can sing about a God like that. We can sing about a God like that, right? The next line, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. The Lord God here in Hebrew is Jah Jehovah. just means the Lord, the Lord. God, God. It's Him. He's the one I get. Instead of the Lord handing me over to all these things that I was trying to reach and pursue after in this world, instead of that, He gives me Himself and His presence and His comfort and His love. You know how the Lord becomes your strength in your song? He becomes your strength in your song when you start to see His love and how much He has forgiven you, how much Christ has taken on Himself and you have been forgiven. If I think I'm forgiven this much, I'm only going to be this thankful. But if I think I've been been forgiven from head to toe, all of me, I am going to be filled with thankfulness from head to toe, right? Right? I have a debt that I could never repay, and God has paid that in Christ. Amen. Knowing God's forgiveness like that and His love, that's what fills you with gratefulness and thankfulness. 
He becomes your strength, and you can sing about a God like that, can't you? He becomes my song. Ephesians 5.19 says, Be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father. Listen to this. For everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You're filled with the Spirit. You're praying thanks to the Father, and you're praying in the name of Jesus. You are all for God now. If you know a love like that from your core, your heart, you become for the Lord, just like He is for you. You get the Lord. And the next line, again, let me say it again in case you missed it. He become my salvation. The Lord Himself is my salvation. You get the Lord in a relationship with Him. And what saddens me today is that although some of you might claim to know the Lord, you don't know what that personal relationship looks like. You don't know what it looks like to live in a relationship with the Lord. Salvation isn't just something that happened back here one time and then I go about the rest of my life. Salvation is about knowing a person. It's about delighting in and growing to know and growing my affections for a person, the Lord. And if you don't really know what that means, what that relationship looks like, we so desire you to know that today. Please talk to me or Aaron or one of the Connect people or write it in your bulletin. We want to walk you through what does it mean to have that relationship with the Lord. Now some of you here today know the Lord. You know the Lord. You're in that relationship. But you're in a dry season in life, right? You're in a desert right now. You're reaching out for the Lord, but it seems like He's not responding to you. He's not listening. I don't, I don't feel like He's there. If you're in this dry season, if you're in a desert, you know how much your soul desires the Lord. Like a deer pants for water, right? So my soul thirsts for you, O oh God. I hope you find encouragement in this next verse. Verse 3. With joy... With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. If you're in a season of dryness, you rejoice at finding water. You rejoice at finding a well in the desert. And if you turn to this salvation, if you think about and spend time with the Lord and dwell on what He's done for you in Christ Jesus, that is refreshing and renewing and encouraging and sustains you for life in those hard times. He wants you to come. He wants you to draw water from the wells of His love and His encouragement and His peace and His patience. Everything He's lavished on you. He wants you to come and draw waters from that. And we have to draw water from these wells to survive, don't we? We have to spiritually to survive. We have to go to the Lord and spend time with Him. As much as our physical bodies rely on getting water. So we must rely on the Lord to that extent. As you go through this desert of life, all the sufferings and hardships and dry spells, you need a water supply near you every step of the way. You can't survive without water in the desert. This next line, just, just listen to this. This is why the Lord's called more than one well. With joy, you will draw water from the wells Multiple wells, not just one, many wells every step of the way. Like I said, He is with you. He is willing to meet with you and encourage you every step of the way. 
And you must go to him. You must draw water. That's, that's your part to go and draw water. But he is willing to be those endless wells. You can't outdraw the Lord. His salvation never ends. It never dries out. Here's the point I want you to take away from this. God is willing to fill us up as often as we are willing to go to him. And I don't want to come off as unrealistic. I know there are those times when you sit down and you are just facing dryness and you really feel like the Lord's not talking to you, like you're not learning anything. You're just in that season of a desert. I know some of you are in that season right now. I know some of you are facing hardships and trials I can't imagine. Some of you find it hard and to find the motivation to even pick up a Bible and read in the morning. Listen to me, family. The water from these wells, the wells of this salvation, this is our only hope. This is our only chance of survival. If we are turning to anything else in those moments, it's going to blow away in the wind. It's going to show us like the Assyrians. It's going to come back and lead us to death. But again, I want to be realistic. I know there are those times and those seasons when spending time with the Lord is difficult. I want to offer three thoughts to those of you who are feeling that dryness, that you're in that season of the desert right now. First, some of you in that season are living in sin and need to repent. Remember that the Lord's presence comes to us through forgiveness. But we need to turn from our sins first, right? We need to ask for that forgiveness first. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The Lord may not be answering you because you're holding on to something. You're putting something higher than Him. And He wants you to turn from that. Search your lives. If you see something like that in your life, that you're reaching out to or desiring more than the Lord, turn from it. Let the Lord be your first love. Turn from that sin. Second, some of us in that season need to admit, and this might be hard to hear, we need to admit that we are not fighting very hard for that relationship. I can't tell you how many times I hear about people who fall into sin just because they've neglected time in the Word, they've given up that time of meeting with the Lord, and their minds stop thinking about what is true and noble and right, and they get distracted by earthly things, right? You may even be reading the Bible. You may be spending some time in the Word, but if you're honest with yourself, you're not taking the time to let God's Word marinate, to get from your head and soak in all the way to your heart. It takes time. It takes effort. We must be the ones to draw And meditate and think about how to apply and make these truths from the Bible real in our lives. I've heard it said before, if you rake, you get leaves. But if you dig, you get diamonds. I want to be diggers, Veritas. I want to dig in God's Word. He's got a treasure in His Word of spending time with Him. There's a treasure of comfort and love and peace. I want us to find that treasure, but it takes some effort. It takes some time. Show that the Lord is your first love by giving Him that time and that effort. Just let your life reflect that. That's why we're told all over Scripture, live up to the calling you have received. You've already received it. Now just let your life show it. Spend time with Him. Let it, let it show that the Lord is your first love. It's a relationship we have to fight for. 
And then third, and this is hard. I know some that season, and you are taking the time. You are fighting that fight, and you still, you still feel dry. I'm trying, Lord. I'm trying so hard, and I still feel you are distant. This is difficult, but I'm going to ask those of you who are in that season to commit yourself to the Lord regardless of how you feel. Commit yourself to obedience and giving yourself to the Lord regardless of your feelings at the moment. That's the time your faith is being tested and grown. When you can't experience or it seems like the Lord is distant, that's, that's what faith is, right? I believe this even though I don't feel it right now. I know it's true and I have to believe that and hold on to that. Just think about what that's doing for your faith. If my emotions from day to day are like this, right, and my circumstances are like this, they blow around in the wind, don't they? But if I have a truth that is secure despite my feelings, despite my circumstances, if I know this is true, I have a foundation that is firm and secure, an anchor for my soul, right? I have a rock-solid foundation that doesn't change or shift. It stays steady. I think we all need that steadiness in our lives. We all need that constant love and affection and truth, regardless of how we're feeling. And again, I know that's hard. But it's growing your faith. It's growing your faith. So on those days, on those days where you're going through dryness and you have still committed yourself to the Lord and seen that His promises are secure and they're still finding their yes in Christ, when the enemy starts whispering to you, where is your God? You can boldly say, my God is near me. He goes with me wherever I go. I will be strong and courageous, right? Nothing can separate me from his love. That's what you say back to the enemy in those moments. Those truths that are true regardless of how you're feeling. You quote with Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, who was in a season of dryness. He says, I remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the bitterness and the goal." And my soul is downcast within me. He was downcast yet, and this is the promise he hoped on, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's great love. We are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. He is my hope. And I I don't, guys, I don't recite verses to prove anything. I recite them because I need need these truths desperately. I need to meditate on on them day and night, and they sink in as I memorize them, right? That's why we memorize Scripture. It is a truth that is secure when we most need it the most in those seasons of dryness. We must root ourselves in truth, and we can't stop fighting for that. We have to fight for this relationship, for our first love. I have a question. Do you guys see your quiet times with the Lord as fighting for a relationship? Do you see it like that? Do you see time with the Lord as spending time with a person, not just another task on your list to get done? It's spending time with a person. I want us to actually believe that, that we are sitting down and spending time with a person. What what if we really believed God was speaking to us through His Word? What if we really believed he was listening? The creator of the universe is listening to us when we prayed. Would that change the way we read? Would that change the way we prayed? We're spending time with a person, and this person happens to know you. 
better than any other person. He understands you and he wants to comfort you in those times. Do you see time with the Lord like that? With a God that cherishes you. He wants to lavish you with his love. If only you give him the time and and make the effort to draw that water. I think all of us need to hear that, don't we? We are dearly loved. You are dearly loved by the Lord. You have a father who is waiting for you, who's willing to run to you. Even after you've sinned, he's willing to run to you like the prodigal son. If only we turn to him. He wants to lavish you with his love. If you are thirsty, Veritas, if you pant for the Lord like a deer pants for water, turn to the Lord and His salvation. Turn to these wells of salvation. Draw water from these wells. Jesus said in John 4.14, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will never be thirsty again. That is that truth that is constant and secure for all of eternity. He won't ever need anything again. He is firm and secure till the end. Because I've given him eternal life, which is beyond the things of this world. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Draw water from these wells. Remind yourself of that truth that is firm and secure. Fight for this relationship. Open your Bible and believe it's the Lord talking to you. Believe that you are talking to him when you pray. If you know that kind of water, that kind of fullness and joy, you can't help but overflow to others. And that's the second half of Isaiah 12. My second point, God is everyone's salvation. Not just my salvation. He's everyone's salvation. The first three verses are that personal response to the Lord. Verses 4, 5, and 6 are a corporate response, though. Verse 4 says, And you will say in that day. Now in Hebrew, you is plural here. So we went from singular to now plural. So if you were in the South, you might say, and y'all will say in that day. Or if you were in Pittsburgh, you might say, and yins will say in that day. The point is that this is a corporate response of God's people celebrating that Messiah, celebrating that day when they are saved, that salvation that they share together. When we're saved, we're saved into a community, into a family of believers. So when we go through those hard times, those dry spells in life, We have someone right next to us who's willing to pick us up even and bring us over to the water, right? We need people like that in our lives who will point us back to the truth when we get too distracted by earthly things. That's why we have community groups, Veritas. And on those days when you're feeling full, when you're feeling like your walk with the Lord is strong, you can seek someone out who's not in that season and you can pour out into them. We are saved into this family, this family of believers, and we get to worship the Lord together. So Isaiah finishes this hymn with with seven things that come from drinking from the wells of salvation in this community of believers. And I'm out of time, so I can't go through them all, but I'm going to list these things. And if you're regularly meeting with the Lord and drawing from these wells, these seven things should come naturally to you. They should come naturally because you're so full. You can't help but flow outwards. So number one, verse four, give thanks to the Lord. Be filled with gratitude that you're alive. Give thanks for everything. Someone who's been brought back from the dead is thankful for everything, aren't they? That's true of us. Number two, call upon his name. 
If you really see the Lord as your first love, be quick to call out his name, not just one time in the morning, but throughout your entire day. Be quick to go to the Lord and remind yourselves of truth. Call upon his name. Number three, make known his deeds among the peoples. If you've experienced this salvation and this fullness, what's stopping you from sharing it with others? Make known his deeds. Tell others. Number four, proclaim that his name is exalted. If, if we really are thinking about and talking about those things we love the most, we should be talking about the Lord all the time. Proclaim him. Open your mouth. Proclaim his name is exalted. Number five, verse five, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Sing about who the Lord is and what the Lord's done in your life. Let him be the song in your mouth. Number six, let this be made known in all the earth. You should be so filled with joy that you can't help but overflow and seek out others who are lacking this kind of life-giving water. Now, some of you are intimidated by that phrase, all the earth. You mean I have to go overseas to talk about these things? I hope that some of you do. I hope that some of you are so moved by the thought of millions of people perishing because they don't know these life-giving waters that that would move you to go. And if you can't go, I hope that you're eager to give to people who are willing to go. But if some of you just have absolutely no idea what to do with the phrase, in all the earth, let me give you this challenge, Veritas. One person. One person. Ask the Lord to put one person on your heart that you can pursue after and speak truth to and encourage that you can share the Lord with and be there for. One person. That's how you start with all the earth. One person. I hope we can do that. And number seven, verse six. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Celebrate that you get the presence of the Lord. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. He's in your midst. We get His presence. That's who is with us. Now as the band comes back up, we're reminded that we get that Lord's presence at a costly price. It cost Christ His life so that we might know the Lord and experience His presence. He was broken for us so that we wouldn't have to take all that anger and wrath that we deserve for turning to other things. And so when we take this communion, we're being reminded of what Jesus has done, how His body has been broken for us, Veritas. And if you don't know Jesus, this, this serves to remind us... I, I ask that you withdraw from this and just ask the Lord to come into your life and to start the relationship. Come to know Jesus instead of taking this meal today. So read this communion reading with me. Jesus' death brings us life, and this meal reminds us that we are fed by Jesus and forgiven because of Jesus. We rejoice that you have given, risen, and are now with the Father, advocating for us. Amen. And if we really are thankful for everything, we should be eager to offer everything back to the Lord, right? We offer our entire selves for service to the Lord. And so I, I pray that you think about ways that you can serve the body, that you can serve another person, that one person. Just think through what you can give to love them.
With our money, time, and talent, we give generously, knowing that through your son Jesus, you have generously given to us. We rejoice that you have given everything, and we joyfully give everything back to your care. Amen.